I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me is author and family and child development expert, Gail Gross, Ph.D., Doctor in education. Her new book is How to Build Your Baby's Brain, a parent's guide to using new gene science to raise a smart, secure, and successful child. At a time when more and more women are having children later in life and the desire to give children the best possible opportunity has led to extreme measures, whether through CRISPR edited genomes or the social elite bribing top schools around the nation to secure their child's college admission. Dr. Gail Gross provides a guide for parents to help unlock their child's potential and fully realize their role and ability to shape the course of their child's growth. Her positive and integrative approach to difficult issues helps families navigate today's complex problems. She's contributed to broadcast print and online media, including CNN, The Today Show, MSNBC, New York Times, and many more. She was also named one of Houston's most influential women of 2016 by Houston Women's Magazine and has hosted the PBS program, Let's Talk. Welcome to the show again. It's nice to have you here, Gail. Thank you, Catherine. It's a pleasure for me to be here. Okay. Well, your book has been described as a go-to resource for all new parents. So let's start with that. Why would we call your book a go-to resource for all new parents? Well, I cover the um, from I cover the development of early childhood um, brains, and therefore explain that these the various stages of development. And if parents understand those stages, they can affect them, because I also explain how they can do that. And, you know, we have 24,000 genes, not all of them express themselves, and the decision on which genes express themselves and which do not has to do with experiences, the stimulation and the environment. Therefore, your child's uh, brain will develop in certain ways relative to that experience, their experience, and so it'll either happen haphazardly from the environment or deliberately from the environment you create. So in a sense, parents are the true gene therapists. They have it within their control, if they know their children, to affect that development. We used to wonder, is it nature? Is it nurture? Now we know because of our ability to look into the brain. We have MRIs and CAT scans and ultrasounds. We can look into the womb. I call it a womb with a view. And now we can see what actually is going on. So we can see the impact that that the environment has on the brain. And so we now know it's a 50-50 split. That so in other words, it's like, I mean, and they, they talk about the plasticity of the brain. Isn't that what we're talking exactly. about? Yeah. So the parents... Yeah, that whole, and I think that, I think sort of traditionally, I mean, there is the nature-nurture thing, like you said, but it's also like, okay, if I'm predisposed to this and I, you know, and and I have a certain genetic makeup, I can't change it. Not true. So I think we have to keep... Exactly. Not true. Exactly. Because genes are not the whole story, and and neither is the environment the whole story. It really is pretty much a 50-50 split, and therefore, say, for example, which is, uh, just something we can now see in the brain, say that, that your child is shy and has that little part of the brain that, rep, that represents shyness. 
If you know that right off the bat, if you're there with your child and you notice when other people come around, she nestles or he nestles into the nape of your neck or gets fussy when strangers are, are in his purview or her purview, then you know pretty often this is a shy child. Now, that doesn't have to be the end of the story. You can impact that shyness and help your child through the environment that you create to become less shy so that they're functionally social. Will they ever be Jackie Kennedy, where in my day we would have said Pearl Mesta? No, they won't. But will they be comfortable and functional? And in some cases, will the shyness just absolutely go away? The answer is yes, and we have studies to prove that. I think sometimes what parents, particularly new parents, will say, well, he or she, they're shy just just like I am or shy like right. their grandmother. And so that's kind of the way it is, and there's nothing we can do about it, and we have a shy child. So there It's is- just as if you're sitting in front of a mixing board, and you can control what you enhance, what you bring up a level, and what you pull down a level, what you suppress. So you have that mixing board, and you, as a parent, can actually affect which genes are enhanced and which genes are basically suppressed or subdued. And this is within your control. The key is, and it's also in the control of the haphazard environment, so it's going to happen because not all of those genes can express themselves. And it depends on the environment. So it would be better if you as a parent knew the stages of childhood development so that you could deliberately approach those windows and see them as windows of opportunity so that, therefore, you could affect those windows of opportunity. Well, Gail, Dr. Gross, let's talk (laughs) about that in the context of what the reality of parenting today when you have, and I don't know the exact statistics, you probably do, where mom and dad or mom and mom or dad and dad or whoever it is are not home to do that in the beginning. And so children very often are left with nannies or babysitters or, you know, somebody else who's taking care of them. How does that fit into all of this? Well, so chapter four of my book okay. uh, talks about the working parent's guide, how to compensate if you're a working parent. And in full disclosure, I was a working parent. I had to work, and I did work, and um, I was a teacher at that time. And so, you know, sort of like the Girl Scout motto, be prepared, that's the, the, the most important thing a parent can do can approach working when they have children. They, if they're prepared and they know the rules, so to speak, then they can cope and handle problems much better. It's very important to get to know your child. And it's very important to recognize that early detachment from our children affects brain development if we don't compensate for time away. It's, if I, for example... If I'm going to a 7-Eleven to get a cup of coffee and I have my baby in a, an infant seat in the back seat and I close the doors, close the windows, and I'm just going to run in for two minutes and I run out and somebody's running off with my baby, they've broken the window and they've gotten my child, that sheer terror that I feel in that moment of detachment for my child is what a child feels the first time they're put into a nursery, the first time they're put in with a babysitter, 
the first time they're put in with a nanny or whatever combination, unless it's a family member that they're used to, like a grandparent or a, pa- a father or a vice versa, a mother and father, because children have no sense of time and space, so they feel absolutely abandoned. They don't know you're going to return. And in the early stages, you're the whole thing to your child. You're all they know. You're, a baby sees you as an appendage. They don't even see you as separate from themselves. They only know your smell, your voice, your sound, your um, feel, your touch from birth because they've been your roommate for nine months. And, and so as a result, we have to compensate for time away. If a child is stressed like that and detached too early, which we mainly do in our culture... What happens is they overproduce stress hormones. One of the stress hormones, cortisol, can be very helpful to us for function, can be very destructive if we repeat, overproduce it consistently. If we overproduce it consistently, for example, every day going to a nursery, then what happens? And without the compensation, baby overproduces cortisol, cortisol floods the brain, bathes the brain, changes brain architecture if the stress of the detachment is consistent as well as impulse control. So how do we mitigate this? What do we do specific? What what do you do? What does we have to compensate for time away? And that means we have to come home. And even though we're tired and worn out, we have to really override our feelings and spend a lot of cuddle time, a lot of, uh, Repair time with our children Re- and, and structure so that they know what to expect, uh, an evening approach, coming home and playing for a little while, bathing them while you cuddle them and talk to them and soothe them, um, play games, sing songs, and get ready for dinner, complicated language, always speaking in complex sentences, and then... Uh, no short commands, and then reading a book. If you read a, the same book every night there, and, and you read that book while they're in utero, it calms them almost automatically after birth. And uh, it, it, the reconnecting for the time you disconnected is what they need, and that will help them. Not and what about consistency? Stress. That's what I, I mean. Is that part consistency of it too? is the key? And, the, the, and, the, and you know, Voltaire in the best of all possible worlds, Candide's Voltaire. The best of all possible worlds is that we would work with companies that had within them nursery schools, and some of them now do, in which we could work in the morning and take a ten o'clock break and go see our baby in that nursery environment. And then take our lunchtime, instead of spending it with our friends, which we need and want, we override that and we go spend that little time with our babies. And then we take a 3 o'clock break, we go back in and spend time. So they start to expect that you're coming at 10, 12, and 3, and they know, therefore, that they haven't been abandoned. And you create now a habit where the, the cortisol doesn't elevate. We can measure cortisol elevation just by testing the saliva. And babies that don't have this connection with their parents during the day and they don't have the compensation with their parents for time away in the night and on the weekends, then what happens is the cortisol stays elevated and we can test that. It actually goes up hour by hour exponentially, a time away from parents, unless 
there is this expectation that mother is returning and does return, and they can count on that return. And trust is based on experience. So what we're teaching our children by showing up and being with them is that we can be counted on to be there. And what about the school systems? I mean, those are the babies, and that's the beginning of transitioning and separating, separation, individuation, and social work terms. But what about our schools? Are they doing anything to enhance what you're talking about and to help children to develop in ways that, 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 um, I guess you would, that by the, I get, develop in ways so that by the time they get to be in high school, parents aren't, uh, uh, having to get expensive tutors and spending a lot of money and uh, right. all the you know, stuff that they charter do. Schools, yeah. Charter schools are doing a much better job of this than public schools are. And if this is the one place where government really could do a good job and partner with our public schools to really get better at. We have, we're starting to do it. We're doing some of it, early childhood schooling, early childhood development that understands how the brain works and understands that children don't need to just be kept quiet and dry and fed, that in early childhood development, they need stimulation, but they need the right stimulation. For example, I mentioned earlier complicated language. If I said to you as a parent, Catherine, if you don't talk to your child in short commands, but if from the very beginning you talk to your child in complicated language and that and when I say complicated, I mean just complex sentences. Instead of saying, go to sleep, you say, let's get ready to go to sleep. Let's read a book. Let's take our bath. And you're talking to your child. If you do this, you can raise your child's IQ by 20%. You would do it if I told you that that simple thing will build an associative mass that's larger in your child than it would be if it didn't have the stimulation of a complicated language. You would talk to your child in, in more complex sentences. Well, so I'm going to give you an example of that because I think that this is probably <laughs> not exactly what you're talking about, but I baby, I, my, my son and daughter-in-law went away for overnight for a, a wedding, and I babysat for my twin grandsons, 18 months Good old. Good for and you. <laughs> and a three-year-old. Okay, big challenge. The babysitter was there, too. I, I have to, you know, I have <laughs> I to admit that. I did it the that. same way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But one of the things, they wake the week before they had woken up in the 2 o'clock in the morning and they crying and et cetera. So this time I decided to do, I guess what you're saying, but they're only 18 months old. And I, right. they're in their cribs, and I said to them, you know what, boys? Don't wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning. Your mother's not going to be here. I'm the one who's going to be here. So I can't nurse you. I can't do anything. So try and sleep through the night. I mean, as if I were talking to a 10-year-old. I have to tell you, they didn't wake up. They slept That's the right. next day. That's right. Slight because, exaggeration. Yeah. But, you know, at the end of the day, when my children had children, I told them, for example, Baroque music. Baroque music is just like meditation. It goes to the prefrontal cortex. The blood, and more blood goes to the prefrontal cortex. Your body relaxes. Your, uh, your body is, your circulation is better. We can track these things on an MRI. We can see the effect of Baroque music in the brain. Your brain works more laterally. It works more like a, an orchestra. You know, we've always had these anecdotes. 10% of your brain 
works or 5% of your brain or Einstein's brain was 10% active. But the truth of it is our brain doesn't work like that. Our brain really does work like an orchestra. And if it is relaxed, then it, it's more efficient. It, it, uses, it, it works much better because it's not anxious. It's not overproducing cortisol and so forth and so on. So I had my children put Baroque music in iPods and pay, play that 24-7 in their babies' rooms. I had them put stories on with their voices that, so that they were recognizable and then comforted their children and told stories and, had, and talked to their children. And it's something that I did myself when I was a student and I had children and I had to go to school at night. And I would leave little stories on, a, on just a simple recorder for my children to hear my voice at night. So these things have tremendous, these small things have tremendous impacts on our children's brain development. Baroque music, complicated language, mother's voice, father's voice. And um, these things are so simple to do. So if I said to you, if you did this, you'd make a tremendous difference in your child's brain development. You would do them. But most people don't know that they think they need PhDs or EDDs or MEDs, but really all they need is bonding. The key to child development is bonding. A well-bonded child is secure. They have a secure central core, and they can cope with all that life throws at them in a much better way. And in, 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 in a side benefit is that they're inoculated against many problems that other children have. And if fathers are involved, as well as mothers, children are inoculated more against drugs and alcohol and acting out. They do better in math. So many things. Just the word bonding. But that requires us to be there. So... I want to stop you when you say, I want to stop you there because you say it requires you to be one to be there who's ever doing the parenting. And I guess my question is, it's interesting because as you're talking, I'm thinking, you know, putting an iPad in their room, as you say, using technology in a very positive way because now you don't have just some tape recorder. You have really good stuff. You can hear your mother or your father's voice as it really sounds. What about faith? So my question, my question really is, what about FaceTime? I mean, that can be, can that be effective as well if you actually can't be there? Well, that has, that's, there's a problem with FaceTime. There's a, fl- a problem with using that kind of technology because children, until they're really closer to three, over two for sure, shouldn't be looking at computers and shouldn't be looking at the internet and so forth. And FaceTime creates a certain longing. So, it's not that you're, they're hearing mother's voice for comfort that sub, subdues them or soothes them, really. But FaceTime creates a different kind of longing. They, they don't quite understand the technology. There's my mother, but I can't touch her. There's my mother, and I can't mm-hmm. have her. So it's like wanting to reach through the technology to bring mother home. On the other, on the other side of that is, as baby gets older... That is a very good idea. Even pictures, hanging pictures of you over your crib, um, in having a picture that your baby can take to their nursery school, their favorite toy that becomes a substitute for you for soothing and comfort. 
So there are these ways that we can do them, do these things. Babies in the early stages, though, don't quite understand it. They start understanding it as they move along. Your 18-month-old is starting to understand it. And, and certain games that we play help baby understand these things, like peekaboo. They start to anticipate that even though you're gone, you're going to come back. Even though you're hiding, you're going to be, you're going to return. So, and in my book, I explain how children make these changes developmentally so that they learn to realize that what is hidden isn't gone. That they, they, as they develop, a lot of this is, I know you're a social, you have a lot of social working expertise, so you know about Piaget and you know about um, his um, model of childhood brain development, and you know about um, Erickson and so forth, and all of these models that teach us how the brain changes so that different ways of teaching children and reaching children come along as they get older and can handle that. I'm thinking, can you think of any other, and that was a, I'm glad I asked you the question about FaceTime because it actually, as you're describing, it makes the child at a certain age feel worse, as you say, longer. But as they get older, it's a great idea. Yeah, as they get older. Are there any other ways like that we could tie into technology well, and the, positive? The, the story positive. time is huge, and that's because, you know, we think of a baby in utero, we call it a fetus. And so we have these names that distance us from what's going on inside of us. But actually, that little person inside is not a seedling. It's a person. And it, now we have ways of looking into the womb. And we can see that there's development going on that is unbelievably huge. And from four months on, and this is Patricia Cole's work from uh, Seattle, Dr. Patricia Cole, she shows us that when a, a baby is at four months old in utero, they're learning their mother's language. This is how your baby learns a complete language by the time they're two years old, without ever opening a book, without ever taking a test, without ever studying anything about um, meter or tone or rhythm or um, conjugation or... Children learn about language in the womb. Chomsky, remember, tells us there's this part of the brain that has to do with language. But now we know that it's actually that the baby is hearing his mother speak 24-7. And he's hearing her through like a muffled echo chamber. And he hears her rhythm and her tone. And therefore, by the time baby's born, he already recognizes his mother's language in particular, his mother's voice in particular, if he heard 20 other languages at birth, he wouldn't recognize them. But the minute mother speaks and her language, his brain lights up, again, like an orchestra. And so mother's voice is huge. And a father is a savvy father. And he talks to his wife's tummy when baby's in there. And once a day... He reads a story to baby while baby's in utero. And the same story every day after baby's born and is fussy and dad reads that same story again, he'll calm baby down almost immediately. So recording mother's voice, recording dad's voice, 
has a soothing effect on baby because it's something natural to baby, innate, really. They don't think that's separate from them. They think, that's my mother. That's why there's so much sibling rivalry, or that's my father. Children cannot comprehend that another baby would get that kind of attention from their mother or their father, because that's their mother and their father. They're very. Well, we only, we, you know, we have one minute left, Gail, and I hate <laughs> to end this conversation because my next question, and I don't think you can answer it because it's a minute left. But I'll try. <laughs> well, you, it was, and maybe something to think about. Well, anyway, everyone should read your book because if you are, if your baby is born with a surrogate. And so that's not your voice. It's going to be the that's surrogate's right. voice. So that's a whole other issue. We'll talk about that another time because they're going <laughs> to kick us both off the show. But uh, I just want to how to mention your book again, How to Build Your Baby's Brain. How a to Parents Build Your Baby's guide. Brain. Yes, How to Build Your yeah. Baby's Brain, A Parent's Guide yeah. to Using New Gene Science to Raise a Smart, Secure, and Successful Child. And that's Dr. Gail Gross. You can buy the book at Amazon. I assume bookstores everywhere. Thanks so much for being on the show today. And my website is www.drgailgross.com, and we have already won the Parenthood.com product award. And I'm on Instagram and all social media, just Dr. Gail Gross, Instagram or Twitter or Facebook. And we're in Barnes & Nobles and so forth. Great. Terrific. Go out and get the book. Thank you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 